Hello, Bookstew viewers. I know that many of you are avid readers of memoirs, and I know there's also another segment of you, and maybe in the Venn diagram they intersect, of people who really enjoy reading true crime stories. But how many of you have read a book that encompassed both? Probably not many, but after today's show, you'll certainly know about one. And I'd like to introduce you to Joanne Hart, who is the author of Stamford 76, A True Story of Murder, Corruption, Race, and Feminism in the 1970s. Welcome, Joanne. Yeah, thank you, Eileen, for having me. So that title sure encompassed everything. <laughs> Was there anything they left out? Yes, no. So um, when publishers buy your book or contract to publish your book, they, they control the title. That's almost, in, unless you're super famous, unless you're Stephen King, they, they marketing basically does the title with the editor, with the purchasing editor. And so uh, University of Iowa chose the title. Um, I, had, uh, the, I had called it Old Schofield Town Road, where the murder takes place at one point. That was also called uh, Pretty Pink Things uh -huh. at some point. And, but for 20 years, I was working on the book. The document itself uh, said Stanford. So it's not that far away, except they kept adding all these words. And my understanding was that that was for search you know, people doing searches. Well, it certainly <laughs> defines it. You know, you don't it have did. any question about what it's about. That's right. And Stanford, I think, is is interesting in in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. I'm from New York. Yeah, uh, I've been living in Massachusetts for 40 years. So I'm very aware of mm -hmm. Connecticut as being this clump that you have to go through when you're going back and forth right. between Boston and New York. And uh, Connecticut always seemed kind of skitsy to me. Like, depending on where you live, you mm -hmm. either, I, you're pulled in by Massachusetts right. and the rest of New England, or you're pulled in by New York. And right. Stanford, in the time frame that you were writing about, mm -hmm. Stanford's been through so many incarnations. Right. So um, actually, you start, did you start writing the book in 1999? Um, yes, yeah. I started a long time, like by, by the time it was published last year, I'd been working on it for 20 years. And basically that was when um, I'd said that, you know, all the things that happened in the book, which are pretty disturbing, I had really put aside and almost forgotten the whole incident. And then my girls, I have three children, the first two were girls. When they started getting closer to the age I was then, I just, it just all came back to me. And, you know, like just sort of this visceral fear for them. You know, mm -hmm. if it to be to going being a female in this world and going out into it, and um, I started just flashing back to my own teen years and going, and I started thinking, what was that? And what had, was that? Had you been a writer prior to writing this book? Um, yes, I had. Uh, I have two novels. Oh, um, I had actually started this. I, I started writing late in life. Um, I was. Once again, my children were the impetus. I had um, dropped out of school. It's in the book. I dropped out of Skidmore in 1975. Um, and when my kids were, once again, reaching, getting like in their you know, early teens, I was like, oh no, they're not going to go to college unless I can't talk them into college unless I've gotten my degree. So ah. for all the time, my children were very young. Even in between kids, I'd, I'd go back and forth from Gloucester to 
Cambridge and got finally got an undergraduate degree at Harvard Extension. Wonderful place to get your degree. So Great that's place. interesting though because I'm thinking, is it a better approach to say, look at me, I didn't go to college. Right. Or look at me, I did yeah. go to college. I guess you felt the latter. Well, sure. I wanted my kids to go to college. I, I certainly didn't want them to say, you know, you've done okay. You never did. And yeah. in fact, it was college uh, that got me writing. I mean, I was there. I was uh, undergrad. You when you're at Harvard Extension in the degree program, you do declare a major. I was in social sciences. I thought maybe I'd get an MSW, Masters in Social Work, someday. And uh, the only writing I'd ever done was term papers. And then because uh, there's degree requirements, I had to take an expository writing course, in which I was like, rah, 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 math, expository <laughs> writing. Rah, rah, rah. But I had to do it, so I did it. And in that class, this is the most wonderful thing about liberal arts education. You don't know where your talent is sometimes until someone tells you. Mm -hmm. And the professor called me into her office and said, how long have you been writing? And where, what are you doing? Where are you writing? She is uh, still basically my mentor today. Oh. And she handed me a big pile of uh, writing books and sent me on my way. And uh, soon, I was too late to change my major at that point. But um, after graduating from Harvard Extension, I went on to, uh, immediately went to get my master's in um, fine arts and writing and literature from Bennington College. Yeah. So there, that's, you know, that's what uh, liberal and arts so is all about. And so in between the murder that happened, mm -hmm. um, which was in July of 1976, right. and you're writing the book, right. there's this whole blank where you really hardly gave the whole incident a thought? No, it was so traumatic. Um, this will often happen with traumatic incidents in whole groups of people. Uh, apparently, the 1918 flu, when did you ever hear about ah, it? Right. You know, that was really traumatic. We didn't hear about it really till the 100th anniversary of it. And, um, and now we're really hearing about it. Um, it. And that nobody around me talked about it. I mean, it was like there was no reinforcement, um, no encouragement to talk about it. Uh, we were so. Uh, we just didn't acknowledge that it happened. Really. Well, I guess now we'll have to tell the readers what it is. Right. So how about summarizing for us well, what this, it the is, tragedy? Is um, in 1975-1976, I lived in Stamford, Connecticut. I grew up in New York, uh, but I'd gone to Stamford, Connecticut after dropping out of Skidmore. And um, I met a man, um, slightly older, a black man who'd gone to Columbia, who'd graduated from Columbia University, ran for mayor of Stanford. We, we were in this two-year relationship. And his, and so we were in this little tiny group of biracial couples in Stanford. And in 19, and still today, it it's not, was not a happy place to be. I mean, we were, was shunned by everybody. I mean, by the black community, by the white community, we just had ourselves. And one of these couples was uh, Howie and Margot, and Howie was a good friend of Joe's, my boyfriend's, and, but he was a drug dealer. Joe was not, and, but Howie was, and Margot was his girlfriend, 
Uh, she was a little odd. We didn't, he, Howie was creepy, Margo was odd. We, I didn't have a lot interaction with them. And then one day in uh, basically the 4th of July, the bicentennial, hence the title of the book, Stamford 76, um, she was found dead with an arrow through her heart. And, um, and she'd been uh, hastily buried in a uh, old potter's field. And then Howie was questioned, but he was never arrested. He didn't run. And a few weeks later, he holds up a liquor store, uh, which was odd. He was a drug dealer, but he was frankly not a bank robber. And it was sort of the situation was very strange. And he was shot dead in that um, liquor store holdup. And, and that was that. And that with their, they, their names never appeared in the paper together. It was swiftly swept under the rug. The rest of us, were friends, were all traumatized. We don't speak about it. And I have to say, but Stanford, as you said, it was an interesting time in Stanford, Connecticut history that uh, in the 70s was a, a difficult period, to say the least. There was mass recession, unemployment, violence. It was a very violent decade bombings, uh, kidnappings, everybody's leaving New York City. New York City was going bankrupt. New York is dead. New right. York is dead. And they're all looking at Stanford, Connecticut. Or Stanford, Connecticut is saying, look at us. Right. And they're pulling in all the HUD money, housing, urban redevelopment, um, tore down, just ripped, bulldozed the downtown black community, bulldozed it clean away. Which you can tell when you drive through now because there's like 95 in the middle of, now it's all right. empty corporate buildings, which is kind of ironic. When right, you it is that. kind of ironic. But so this was that time in history. Stanford was the place of the, the nation's first corporate park. The corporate park was developed in Stanford, Connecticut. So it's like they are definitely, they, it is literally the corporations are packing up and look at to get out of New York and looking at Stanford and Stanford has to stay clean. Stanford has so there is going to be none of, you know, gruesome bow and arrow murder. The paper did a terrible job of reporting it. It was they never put a picture of Margot in it. They you know, it was just horrific and buried and hence, you know, I was like, well, if everybody else is going to forget about it, I guess that's what we do and I really just just put it aside. It's amazing to me that um, that it, it, it such a large amount of time went by, mm -hmm. and the fact that it was your daughters worrying about your daughters that right. kind of brought it all back. Yeah. Do you think when your daughters were growing up? So this was, let's say, in the nineties, and when you were their age, so in the mid seventies. Mm. Which it was a more dangerous era when you think about it. Well, 70s was very dangerous. I mean, 70s was uh, women, it was a taught period of feminism, um, you know, where we were told we could do anything and then sort of set loose. And it was just this mass, and I could never find statistics on it, but this period of just women running away, you know, mm. women running away from their husbands women running, uh, younger women running away from homes, 
uh, women running out of nunneries. I mean, just women running. And back then, we all hitchhiked. Right. I mean, it was hitchhiking was common, and it was commonly dangerous. And uh, you know, a, a body drop by the side of the road was was common. In so did it, so once have you spoken to your daughters? Like your daughters, I assume they have read the book. Yes. Do they see you? How do they see you? Because you're their mom, and right. you know, of course you're older. Yeah. Do they talk to you about? how they felt about discovering mm -hmm. what your prior life in the 70s had been? Right. They knew. I mean, they didn't need to read the book. I mean, I had some point, uh, well, <laughs> the point when my 14, the oldest, when she was old enough to go through my jewelry <laughs> <laughs> and found um, and what uh, was obviously a, an engagement ring. And, you know, 14-year-old girls, they are just so smart. She's like, what's this? Yeah, I'm like, what are you doing in my jewelry box? Never mind, what's this? And I said, oh, I was engaged before um, I married your dad. I, you know, I told her I was with this, you know, black guy in Stanford for a couple of years, and it just didn't work out. And um, and they had found out about the murder. I'm sure through my sister, as you know, my younger sister, I think maybe had told them during ski trips before I told them about the murder itself. I'm not quite sure how that, but they knew, certainly knew about the relationship, and at some point they, they knew about the murder. And they're talking about kids and the book. So it's the two girls, and then my youngest is a boy. And as I said, I also have two novels, because I kept putting this book down and writing a novel, uh. because it was like I just reached blocks I couldn't go any further without more information, and so I'd write a novel and then pick it up again. So I had to have three books. My youngest, my boy, has never read a single one because he is so afraid of finding something sexual. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, we'll have to. I, I, I understand that because, I mean, if you've ever been watching TV with your parents, I'll, oh, I'll never yes. forget one time something came on. <laughs> And it was like, oh, my, where can I run? Where can, where can, I, can I, hide? I hide? And all of us were like, yeah. if we could have made ourselves disappear, we all would have done that. Yes, yes. So um, let's talk a little bit about Joe. Yeah. Joe is your boyfriend, and Joe is, he's a very intriguing character, mm -hmm. and yeah. your relationship, um, the dynamics of your mm -hmm. relationship to me was one of the most fascinating oh, parts really? of the book, oh, especially wow. because of the the time frame and right. you're mentioning now that you were not accepted right. anywhere. Um, you and you did not seem to be someone who um, was was brought. It, you, if you were brought up in a racist, mm -hmm. a blatantly racist household, mm -hmm. that was not apparent. No. in your attraction to Joe and in your relationship and in your handling of the relationship. Mm -hmm. You became friend, very friendly with his mother right. who, who uh, approved of you two being a couple. Right. But it must have been very difficult. Yes, it was. It was really difficult back then. I think it is not terribly changed now, sadly so. I know uh, mixed-race couples who are openly harassed on the street. Mm. Um, they are, of course, stopped all the time for, you know, DWB, driving while black. Right. You know, I was never so stopped as often by police as I was in those two years. If Joe was in the car, 
the good chances were good I was going to get stopped. Whether I was driving, whether Joe was driving, it didn't matter. I don't think I've been stopped since then. Yeah, I don't think that, I've been stopped since then. That, that unfortunately makes a lot of sense. Right. We were stopped at, for the classic things that black people get stopped for, which Tail is like lights. a cracked headlight. Yeah. We headlights turned out to be fine. You know, yeah. it's they want an excuse to stop you. It is that is was true then. We can see how true it is now. Um, so did that make you, uh, that must have made you all the more aware mm -hmm. of racism. And do you feel like it radicalized you? Uh, I was pretty radical already, you know, going into the relationship. I was uh, very politically active in high school. Um, I was the um, editor of the paper and made it so radical they took it away from me. They actually closed the paper oh. rather than have me. Because <laughs> um, I know it must have had something to do with the showing, uh, taking, publishing a photo of kids smoking pot on the front lawn, oh. I guess. I don't know. Anyway, um, mustn't do that. Yeah, no, mustn't do that. And th I also, I mean, I'm for years I worked um, for the old uh, United Farm Workers Great Boycott. That's what I did in my spare time. I stood in front of supermarkets handing out leaflets asking people not to buy grapes. Oh, those were the days. Yeah. I, I did a lot of that myself. Yeah. But um, because I think your relationship with Joe is one of the centers of mm -hmm. the book, I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't do a brief reading for oh, us. Because sure. I always like um, viewers to get a feel for right. the writing the words. Of, of the author. And I thought, I picked out a part that you said you'd never been asked to read before. Yes. But it, it, I just, uh, I. I thought it was really indicative of the of your relationship, yes. it, which really is one of the. I mean, we're forgetting about Margot in a way, right. who, yeah. but we hopefully we'll have time to talk more about that. Yeah. Okay. So this is uh, just about halfway through the book, a little under halfway through the book. In high school, on the back pockets of a pair of jeans, I had elaborately embroidered the words "le cœur a ses raisons que la raison ne connaît point." The heart has its reasons that reason knows nothing of. I might have even been wearing them when I met Joe, and when the jeans wore out, I kept the pockets. I still have them. Yet, in spite of what my pants said, there is still a nagging part of me that believes that our brains can decipher our hearts. Were Joe and I drawn to one another by the color of our skin? You betcha. Joe, as I was to discover, dated only white women. On my part, curiosity might explain the skin-deep attraction of a one-night stand, but not a two-year relationship. Rebellion is too pat, zeitgeist is too abstract, and romantic chemistry too complex to unpack. Although I do remember being drawn to Joe's voice, which was deep and emotive, as befitted the gospel singer's son, especially when he recited Shakespeare, which was more often than one would think. To be or not to be, that is the question, Joe would exclaim with drunken gusto, whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles. Not content to just recite the lines, Joe, the princeling wannabe, would then interpret them as well, making a show of his liberal education. He gave Hamlet a racial spin, 
suggesting a tactical struggle between Martin Luther King Jr.'s civil disobedience and Black Panther violence. I remember being impressed, as I was the first night we met, when he dropped Hamlet's Heaven and Earth line, even though later I realized it was no more Shakespeare than could be picked up in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I continued to poke at the bones of our love through the 80s and 90s while working on my undergraduate degree, taking night classes at Harvard Extension so that by the time my children were contemplating college, I'd have a diploma to wave about like a flag. I was a social science major with a focus on gender studies, so I was knee-deep in French feminist theory and Lacan. At that time, I looked on my relationship with Joe as falling in love with the other and contemplated that my real attraction to Joe was the distance between us. We were two opposing forces, and the tension that it created was the excitement we felt for one another. It was an interesting intellectual exercise, but beyond all that, I was simply charmed, a delightful sensation that I now recognize as a warning bell. It was the charm I was dangerously, dangerously receptive to. I have never liked labels, so I am not going to put one on Joe or anyone else in my life. A label like narcissist, for instance, can rob a person of his or her humanity and condense them into a single pathological trait. Grandiosity is another word I don't like to use, so I won't. Instead, I will say that there are those who, when they turn their attention on you, pull you into the world they have created, and it is warm and intense. You feel so special, but you are only an accessory to their vision, not a person who might have a vision of her own. There is a theory that people are attracted to those with whom they can work out unresolved issues about one or both parents and I could have been its poster child. I would have been attracted to Joe even if his skin was green because he was just so damn familiar. Maybe we are all drawn to the person who has a lesson to be taught, but my being in love with the person I wanted him to be and not who he was makes, only makes me one of the millions of people who fall in love every day not knowing that that is the name of the game. We were engaged for the next year and nine months without ever making plans to actually get married, although Georgia and I would sometimes talk about dresses. Joe liked to think out loud about wedding presents. At the top of his registry was a small derringer, a gun, without which one could not set up housekeeping, apparently. Not an interracial household at any rate. In many ways, it was amazing that we could talk about such a marriage in 1975, just eight years after the Supreme Court, in the loving decision, made interracial marriages legal. Eight years. Oh, yeah. So uh, that, that beautiful passage summarizes Joe. Yeah. But now, since we're getting low on time, mm -hmm. unfortunately, yeah. I'd love to talk more about Margot yeah. and about your investigation, which mm -hmm. lead, you know, which really is the other focus of the book, right. True Crime and Corruption in Stanford. Right. Yes. Yeah, so Margot, uh, once again, this is like, you know, second wave feminism. She graduates from Fairleigh Dickinson 
and she goes out into the world and she meets up with Howie and uh, she wants to be his equal. So she wants to be um, a drug dealer too and she wants to be on equal footing with him. So they, are, they both deal drugs and um, it is, she's, she's a little odd. I think she, the drugs were mostly pot, um, but they did a lot of acid. I don't think there was anything harder. I don't think it was like heroin, um, but they did acid and she often acted like she was very spacey. Um, it was hard to get close to her because of that. And there, um, you know, after so many years of research on the book, the files were closed and nobody, everybody was dead or they didn't want to talk. Joe, who could have told me everything, by the time I realized I, I needed to know, he had died. Um, no internet. No, right, yeah. So it was really difficult. And um, so it was like, I w so most of the time I was researching, trying to find Margot, trying to find out who she was. And she was just this really, you know, bright, smart, independent woman who had had, um, you know, who had a lot of fragile things, sad things happen in her life, and which led her to uh, a risky, dangerous life that ended up, um, I won't say my opinion, the, the, her, the case, her case was never solved. I mean, there was obviously never court, any court case. The, the principal um, who they thought had did it, Howie, once he died, that's it. Her case was never opened again. So in, in, the, uh, in the book, you kind of draw some conclusions. I do, though. yeah. Um, did that, do you know if that created any uh, any outrage in Stanford because yes, it did, it's yeah. pretty and what you were accusing yeah. mm -hmm. pe some people of you know between organized crime right. the police department that that was pretty serious right. allegation that's right so you know uh, uh, organized crime goes where the money is and so Stanford as I said was just raking in the money from you know for all the urban renewal and building the urban park so um, <laughs> the police department I found which I, Joe had always told me, but of course I just thought he was being paranoid, was run by the Gambinos. I mean, it was run by the Gambinos. And so uh, that's a sort of a, so when you're a drug dealer in a town like that, that's actually a dangerous thing to be because you're either with them or you're not uh -huh. with them. And they, they controlled the trade. And so it was, um, yeah, I forgot even where I was. But nobody has seen nobody, you right. or so, anything no, like that. that. So that had that whole part that had been exposed already, ah. um, because in after soon after Howie died was the first of a series, uh, two year series by Tony Dolan, Anthony Dolan, who won the uh, Pulitzer Prize for that series ah. on exposing the uh, corruption in that city. Did it change a lot? Not really. But in fact, he exposed it, and uh, he went on to become Ronald Reagan's speechwriter and wrote all the famous Reagan speeches, and um, and works in the White House today. <laughs> I think we'll leave that part yeah. out. Um, but I and we are out of flat out of time. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I wish we could continue yeah. forever. But um, I I, it's such an unusual combination, the mm -hmm. memoir and the yeah. true crime that. Uh, it was an, it was really an intense read, and yeah. I, I 
highly recommend it to all our viewers. So I mm -hmm. want to um, thank you so much for joining uh, me today. Thank you for having me. And um, books to viewers, I'm going to ask you all to look for this book. It's available probably in libraries, yep, library. on Amazon. Yeah. Um, you won't regret it, and uh, you'll still end up with some questions, mm -hmm. but um, mostly you'll end up with admiration for Joanne Hart's quest to mm. solve what, uh, what happened to a bunch of basically innocent but troubled people right. in a troubled time. Yeah. So thank you so much, Joanne. Yeah. And books to viewers, this is really a book uh, worth worth your read. Have a good night.